Raymond. And I'm Zara, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Darby Ray, member of the faculty at Bates College and director of the Harwood Center for Community Partnerships. Darby sat down via Zoom with multi-faith fellows Austin Dumont and Hannah McKenzie to discuss the importance of imagination in her everyday life, how the pandemic has shifted the ways we assign value to work, and how she apparently hasn't changed at all since high school. Hi, I'm Austin. Hi, I'm Hannah, and I'm very excited to introduce our conversation with Darby today. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us, Darby. I guess we'll begin with a little background. So where were you born and what are your earliest memories of childhood? Sure. So I was born in Florida, a tiny little town uh, called Mount Dora in central Florida. It's actually a town that was uh, all the main buildings were built by my grandfather. He was a builder and my father and his brothers all worked for him. So um, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic place to, to grow up. My earliest memories, I would say, are very much um, about imaginative play. So um, my mom was a preschool teacher and my dad was a lawyer and was the mayor of our town for a while, but he's also a really free-spirited person, always has been. So like, for example, in the seventies, there was this phenomenon where everybody went streaking. Have you guys ever heard of this? Streaking, right? You get butt naked and you run around. So my dad, when he was mayor, there's like a picture of him on the front of the newspaper. It was called the Mount Dora Tropic. And you saw like some hedges that like covered up, you know, his naked parts, but you saw the mayor on the front page of the paper streaking as a part of this nationwide like phenomenon. So, so that's like the family I grew up in. We were all a little bit kind of just out there and wacky. And so as a child, my mom would just say to us, there were four of us in our family. And then there were a bunch of other kids in our neighborhood. And um, mom would just say, go outside and play, be back by dark. And this would be like the summer in Florida, like it didn't get dark till nine o'clock at night, right? So we would just go. And oftentimes we'd like pack a lunch because we were just going to be gone all day. And um, we, we did just, we, we did a lot of like productions. So we, um, like my sister and a couple of friends, we were Josie and the Pussycats. I don't know if you know that cartoon, but we like had guitars and we would create performances and we would make these elaborate invitations and songs and plays. And we would go to people's houses to in invite them to come to our Josie and the Pussycat concerts. And we would have everybody set up in our backyard and we would just be, we were terrible. Like we weren't musicians. We were just crazy kids, you know? It was, it was like a sort of a wild imaginative childhood without a lot of limits or constraints. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of like store-bought stuff. It was always like, what was at hand? But there was a lot of freedom and frankly, a lot of safety to be able to just 
use our imaginations. My mom's favorite song when we would say, you know, what are we going to do today? She would say, use, use, use your imagination. And to this day, I always, you know, if I start to be bored, I hear my mom's song in my head. Um, and I think it's also carried with me in terms of um, the work I do now is very much about like working with other people around problem solving. What is problem solving? other than using your imagination with other people and trying to create like the world you want to inhabit. Right. And that's what we were doing. I feel like as kids in our little town in Florida. Thanks, Darby. That's actually a great segue into our next question. Um, was there one person with thing in your childhood or young adult years that set you on your current path? Mm, on my current path. Well, I'll say I had a, uh, a lot of great teachers had some really bad teachers too, but bad teachers teach you like what you, who you don't want to be in the classroom. Right. So they're just as, as instructive, I think, but I would have to say it would be my parents in terms of who's had the most profound influence on me. I've already kind of described them and they really continue to be my people. You know, I check in with them at this point every day. They've have, you know, they're old and have a lot of health problems. And um, so the the roles have reversed themselves in certain ways in terms of caretaking and, and inspiration and things like that. But they've always been uh, my role models for trying to live with integrity and trying to live with imagination and compassion. And so I would say they're definitely the, the most profound influences on me. And as it turns out, my mother, again, I mentioned she was a teacher, preschool teacher. Um, and then my father was a lawyer, a small town lawyer. Uh, he, he never, ever sent a bill to anyone ever for his services. <laughs> so when we were growing up, like he was just like, you know, the people who can pay will pay. The people who can't pay won't feel ashamed of it because I'm never, you know, they're going to call me and ask me what they owe me if they want to know. And so when we were growing up, we would we would get paid. It felt like the Waltons or something, but we would have like quilts. And my favorite was when people would pay us in boiled peanuts. You ever had boiled peanuts? The Southern delicacy of all time. I would love it. We would just get like these giant, like 10 pound bags of steaming boiled peanuts. And um, those were my favorites, but we got live chickens. We got wheelbarrows. I mean, whatever somebody had, and we always put it to use and it was always great. So it was sort of a barter system. Um, I think I got off base there, but that was something about my <laughs> inspirations. Yeah, that's, that's all really sweet to hear. Um, kind of on that same note of childhood and your parents too, I'm curious if you had any particular religious or spiritual background in your upbringing. Yes, my family was very religious. And by that, I mean, really committed to our church community. Uh, we were members of the Episcopal Church when I was growing up. I'm what they call a cradle Episcopalian. And for me, I think uh, what that looked like, I mean, it was definitely, you know, we went to church every week. But more than that, um, we were just super involved in that community. For me, what I church was, was number one, music. The Episcopal Church in general, I think, really values music as a sacred pursuit and art and experience. And so religion was very much about singing and about making music, about instruments, about beauty. 
as what it looked like and felt like to tap into the divine or the sacred or something beyond oneself. Um, and then the, another thing besides music was nature. My old church, actually, the it didn't have side walls. It just had um, sliding glass doors all the way on each side of the sanctuary. And then at the front, it had like this giant skylight above the altar. So it was just like light and sun. Like you could sit there at the communion rail and like just look up and watch the clouds or the birds or whatever. And there was always the greenery. And so church felt like immersion in the natural world. And so I got this sense that if there was something called the divine, it was something that, that infuses things like beautiful music and, and art making and the non-human world. So it was very much what I would call a sacramental tradition and sensibility, um, the, the sense of the divine sort of in and through the quotidian realities of, of everyday um, life. That was, so it was a really, it was a really um, positive thing for me. I did, church for me was like about community and connecting with friends and, and music. That, that was it, that was, that was religion. That's really beautiful. Have you found way, new ways or have you kind of held on to that same kind of commitment to community and music through the church in your adult life or in other ways? Um, so moving to Maine um, was a big shock to that whole part of my life. But, but backing up even a little further, I would say that um, eventually I decided to study religion. And what drew me there was a realization that religion can be a source of connection and profound humaneness in the world. And I realized, it, you know, it's a source of enormous pain and trauma and global strife and toxicity in lives and communities. And so when I, I sort of, you know, realized that my experience of religion was the sugar-coated experience of religion, then I wanted to learn more because it had been so powerful for me. And um, so I, I studied religion and became an, a scholar of religion. That just means a really committed student <laughs> of religion. And, um, and so eventually, especially during graduate school, when I was doing all this reading and just, just recognizing the oppression and the suffering, I became very much um, disillusioned with religion and the practice of religion. And so I, I couldn't really participate in it for years, um, but I couldn't quite get away either. So what I did was I got a job um, working at the downtown Episcopal Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where I sat at the desk. So I would sit there and I could like smell the incense on the high holy days. I could hear I, the music that was the thing I could still experience because it's flooding out of the sanctuary into the little hallway where I sat. And, um, and I, I knew, so it's a liturgical tradition, the Episcopal churches, so you use the prayer book and it's, you know, it's kind of the same every week. And many people think that's deadening and a really bad idea, but, but I found it really um, kind of comforting because I didn't have to be imprinted by 
the patriarchy and the white supremacy and the settler colonialism of all of that religion that I was, was realizing was there and had been there all along. I didn't have to be sort of uh, complicit in that, but I could be near it in a way that was still um, profoundly comforting for me as I was fighting against this and really critiquing it in my in my work and, and in my scholarship. So um, then I, I sort of came to a piece with religion in certain ways. It felt like it was very much about community. It was an opportunity to be in community, to try to forge what Howard Thurman called beloved community, community rooted in um, justice and mercy and, um, and equity. And so um, I've, I found church communities along the way that allowed me to stay connected in to, to different degrees, um, but still music and nature and community have continued to be sacred for me. And I would say those are the places where I find divinity incarnated. Um, I still find a lot of wisdom from prophets and preachers and teachers and wise people from across what we call the world's religions. But uh, I would say those things that, that I originally connected with religion continue to be religiously powerful for me. Um, Maine is a pretty unchurched state in a lot of ways. Um, and I have not found the kind of community that I have found in some other places that made me feel like I've I belong in church. I do. I do ha have a church here, actually, that I attend, but it hasn't been that place of religious identity and 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 strength for me. So that's that's been sort of a loss. But the great thing is when when religion isn't bound to a particular creedal tradition, when the divine has been allowed to be recognized in, in the multiplicitous ways in which goodness and beauty and strength come into the world, then you can still experience them and see them in all these other places besides religion. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's nice. Y'all are kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for speaking so candidly about all of that. It's, it's really just interesting. Um, and especially how, how that experience is compared to life in Maine is, is really interesting. Backing up a bit in this path you've had, um, a very broad question to start with is just is the person who you are today similar to who you were in high school and college? Yeah, that's sort of a hilarious question because I, so my junior year in high school, I spent, it seems like every single night in my pajamas, on a beanbag chair, in our little family room with this giant book on my lap. It was this paperback book, like three inches thick. It was called Barron's Profile of American Colleges. And this was, you know, we didn't have the internet, right? And so I was just reading about, and every college like had a page or two. And I just spent my whole junior year thinking about what college was going to be and where I hoped I could go. Both of my parents had, had gone to the state school in Florida and um, the community that I grew up in 
was very, uh, most of my um, classmates, you know, would be lucky if their families could afford community college. And, but I, I don't know, I just had this sense that I wanted to leave and get out of there and go somewhere else. And so I sat there with this book every night and I would page through it. And, and I, I think that fed this sense of new possibilities and new worlds. And for me, a chance to be someone new. So I remember when I went to college, so um, at the time I was driving uh, my mom's, it was like a, a really old clunky car and I did not want my parents to take me to college. So I decided to go to this little school on a mountaintop in Tennessee called Sewanee. And I didn't know anybody who had ever been there. Nobody in my town had ever heard of it. Every time I mentioned it, they started saying, way down upon the Swanee River, which is the Swanee is a, is a river anyway. So I thought, well, I'm going to go to college and I am going to be the person I've always wanted to be, like the person I couldn't quite be when I was being overdefined by my swim coach or my youth group director or my parents or my older sister or whatever. And I don't know exactly who I thought I was going to be, but I wouldn't let my parents take me to college. I drove this clunky car up, you know, 12 hours. I'd never driven interstates before. I mean, it was just, I, I, I was terrified. I'm sure I was terrifying on the road. I get there and I was ready to remake myself. And then it just turned out I was who I was. Like I, like I was still just me. There was no other me to come out, right? So no, I have been, I mean, when I went to my 10 or 20 year high school reunion, they give out these stupid awards and, you know, who traveled the farthest and who has the most kids and whatever. And one of them is this award. Actually, I'm now remembering both at the 10 and the 20. I got the same award. It's so disappointing. It was the most unchanged Right. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but I like to think that I have evolved enormously in life. Like, I'm like 50, how old am I? I don't know, 56, I think. And are you kidding me that I haven't changed in 56 years? So these people who grew up with me, because again, we all went to school together for 12 years. You know, the, the preschool pictures are the same as the graduation pictures in, in small towns. And they said I hadn't changed. So doggone it I just I am who I am wow yeah that, that's a harsh award I have to say um and what what were your college years like and so you were at Suwanee is that right um yep, it's not a river yep. right yeah not in college <laughs> in the river can you tell me a little bit about just what the community there was like and kind of what the campus atmosphere so I think what drew me to Suwanee was it felt like another um imaginative world so um, if you've ever seen pictures of it, it looks a little bit like Hogwarts. Every building is made out of what's called Swanee Sandstone. It's, it's gorgeous. You just feel like you're in this other world. And I remember I went to visit it with my best friend and my mom, junior or senior year. And it was a super foggy day where you couldn't see, even see across the street, but you could see like the pillars of buildings coming out of the fog. And I, I just felt like I was in a play. I was on the set of this amazing play. And I wanted to be a character in that play. And so I didn't really know what I was getting into. I hadn't researched like what they were good at or, or you know, what the academic life was like. I had decided I wanted to go that Barron's Profile of American Colleges had things like 
highly selective or selective or whatever. And I thought, well, you know, I'm working hard in high school and I make good grades. So I'm going to go for whatever, highly selective. And it was one of those, but that's kind of all I knew. And I had seen these pictures of these buildings. And so, um, you know, it turned out to be for me a great place. Also a place where I didn't fit in a ton of ways. It was a, it was a place where at least at that time, there were a lot of people with a lot of money and sort of old money. I didn't even know really what that was. So I did not fit. I didn't have the clothes. I didn't have the car. I drove, I drove the Ford grenade. That's what we called it. It was this really old battered Ford Granada, the grenade. And, you know, it was just a complete embarrassment compared to what other people had. So, and I just, I didn't, I didn't know. I was really naive. Um, I was not prepared academically. Um, my high school that I went to didn't even offer a foreign language. I got there and you were supposed to have had foreign language even to get in. Like, how did I get in? I still can't figure out how I got in. So my first major French test, I got a 17. I'd been a straight A kid. My, my grades were always put on the refrigerator at home. I remember my mom called after midterm grades arrived my freshman year, my first semester. She's like, I hid your grades. <laughs> she didn't want my little brother and sister to know how badly I was doing. Uh, I wasn't prepared. It was a much worldlier place than I was, but the music was incredible. The outdoors was amazing. I would, we would, I would pack a pack on a Friday afternoon and backpack for the weekend on the domain and never run into anyone and just go, you know, and we would rock climb and, and spelunk and all kinds of things. So, so it was an amazing place for me in many ways and also a really discomforting place for me yeah 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 totally thanks well, thank you darby you talked a little bit about what you one thing you did after college where you worked in tennessee but i'm just curious did you have concrete post-graduation plans and like what in reality what did you actually do the year after college yeah so i um these were really different days than they are now. And as um, a person of uh, relatively great privilege compared to most other young people at the time, I didn't spend my four years worrying about what my job was going to be, um, worrying about whether I would be able to find a career, make a path in life. I just sort of assumed that things would work out. Um, that's a really privileged assumption and it's also just naive, <laughs> but I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I'd grown up with my mom as an educator and I loved school. And, um, so I just decided I would try my hand at teaching. So I got a job at a Catholic school down on the coast in Florida. I was not Catholic and that was a whole new world for me. <laughs> Because again, like my sense of religion was, was really kind of expansive and my experience at my home church growing up was really expansive. And at Swanee also, it was really expansive. And so there, then I got into the school with a bunch of like kind of religiously imposed rules. And like, for example, I wasn't allowed to take communion even though I was required to go to the services. I'm like, wait, you can't require me and ban me at the same time. This doesn't work. <laughs> so it was infuriating for me, but I also loved it. I taught English. 11th and 12th grade English. I um, was the sponsor of the junior class. So we had to 
put on the prom. That was super fun. <laughs> and then I also, oh, and then I wound up coach. I was the swim coach because I grew up as a competitive swimmer in Florida. And so um, I was the swim coach. So, so it was like, it was great. I, I loved it. I did it for a year. I realized I do like teaching. I do feel called to, to teach. I was also realizing there were a bunch of of women who were teachers who were like 29, 30 years old and feeling really burned out and starting to show that in the classroom and get pretty negative. I mean, they were stuck because they had kids and they, they, they therefore had very limited ability to just say, oh, I think I'm gonna go back to school and, and see what else. So I just decided I needed to get out of there. And if I ever wanted to get more education, it needed to be right then. So I did that for a year and learned a lot made a lot of mistakes, but also learned a lot, and then um, headed to Vanderbilt for, for grad school. Yep. You talked about um, teaching being sort of a calling for you. Um, would you say that's kind of the dominant calling that you've had throughout life? And you talked about going to graduate school at Vanderbilt. Was that for education? Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. I think I have experienced multiple callings in my life. Certainly teaching was a really powerful one. And I went to Vanderbilt to study with one of the premier um, feminist theologians in the Christian world. And Vanderbilt at the time was also just really known as a place where um, Christian thought in particular was being really challenged and taken, dismantled and being uh, sort of pulled back to the studs to ask, is there anything liberative here? Is there actually any good news for the widows and the poor and the orphans and the earth and people of color and gay people and people who are differently abled and all those kinds of things? Like that was sort of the, um, the MO of the school at the time. And so it was a a great place for me to be with all those all those questions that I um, was struggling with as I as I came to see this contradiction between the religion I had experienced as profoundly life giving and inclusive, and the religion that I knew um, was a battering ram and a source of of untold trauma for so many. So uh, my my field was Christian thought and practice, and dove especially deeply into both the earliest years of the tradition because I was interested in knowing, um, you know, was there anything, was there anything good there before it maybe got screwed up by becoming institutionalized and becoming, you know, the religion of the empire and an imperial force then for the next, you know, millennia. Um, and then I wanted to look at feminist theology, queer theology, black theology, um, what was called ecological theology at the time, and wrote actually about, you know, some, some really early textual traditions that I thought could speak to the forms of, of kind of resistance Christianity that these later movements were, were trying to empower. Another calling was, has always been, you know, social justice and what does it mean to 
try to participate in the inbreaking of beloved community. Again, Howard Thurman, Dr. King, and others who use that that term because you know I had read Frere and all these people about what it means to be human and all the work I did in environmental and ecological theology, you know, recognizing the anthropocentrism and how we humans just want to make everything in our own image to the detriment of of every species and system other than ourselves. And of course, the we that I'm talking about when we talk about humanity is the able-bodied, cisgender, white, blah, 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 you know, right, a really limited definition even of humanity, right? So, So all of that really kind of got profoundly stirred up for me and got me into a lot of modes of righteous indignation and and youthful rage against the machine stuff. And um, I still have a lot of that in me. So when I was teaching, I taught for 16 years in the religious studies department at a little, a small liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi called Millsaps College. Wonderful little place. Loved my time there. And that my office looked across the street from the college at a neighborhood that, um, well, the college had at one point actually faced that neighborhood west. It had faced west. And that had been a gentrified neighborhood that a lot of faculty members had lived in and raised their families in and things like that. By the time I got to the college, that was the back of the college. The college had actually done a sort of physical about face so that the the buildings that now were the front were behind me and they were facing east because that was now the gentrified nice neighborhood. The neighborhood I was facing as I faced west out of my office window was um, a poor community of color. And that just sort of story (laughs) worked on me really deeply. And I just wound up with very dear friends and deep work in that community for, you know, a decade. And I I started questioning, you know, my teaching and it's great to teach feminist hermeneutics, but what does that look like when you try to live it? You know, if we're not living it, then is the teaching of it unethical? What is, you know, all these kinds of questions. And so I started in my own teaching to begin to think about problem-solving learning and learning that was in collaboration with people who were trying to figure out what does it mean to be beloved community in conditions of poverty, in conditions of racism, in conditions of rampant HIV and um, a lack of, of public health that is compassionate. And that was kind of the, the setting, the, those, those issues. And so I think social justice was the other calling and trying to figure out how to, how to weave that into the teaching in ways that felt credible to me. And that's where what at the time was called service learning came in. And I was an, uh, you know, an early practitioner of that myself and then started working with um, just other colleagues at the college who wanted to do similar kinds of things. And at the same time, what came out of that period of my career was I realized I'm an organizer. I'm called to organize people. (laughs) And I was learning this organizing from my friends, Monica and Tanja, who, who lived in that neighborhood. And together, we three began to organize uh, the campus and the community for sustained uh, relationship 
that was you know, defined by community and led by community and supported by the college. So that's, that's, I guess, the third calling. So I would say, you know, teaching, social justice, and organizing. And so um, I was not looking for a job. I was super happy at the Millsaps. This one day, the phone call, the phone rang, and um, I'm staring out my window, as I always did in my office, and they said, there's a job at the Harvard Center for Community Partnerships. And and I was like, oh, thanks. I'm not on the market, but I really appreciate it. And I was like, wait, did you say Harvard? Is that like Don Harvard? And they were like, yes. And I, like, and I had just hosted this sweet, wonderful man on our campus whom I did not associate with Bates College because he was by then running a whole another organization for the Association of American Colleges and Universities called, called Bringing Theory to Practice, which is what you know I was so enlivened by. And so I paused and I was like, okay, now what's this job? <laughs> And so, you know, that's, that's how I wound up coming to, to Bates eventually was because it was combining, you know, the teaching and the social justice and the organizing in uh, the community that, that I knew the most about, which is, which is higher education, small liberal arts colleges. Um, when we moved here to Maine, we came, uh, Raymond and I came and we had our, our two kids, Chandler and Elena, and we had never lived in snow or anything and the kids had not been around snow. And so we had this tradition and Raymond was like staying home with the kids for those first six months. And so we had these snow days, right? They had these things called snow days that we had never experienced where the kids wouldn't have school and the roads would just be covered in snow and there was no traffic or anything. And, and at Bates, I'd still have to go to work, but I would like take lunch times or I'd take off a little early. And our family tradition was that we would walk to a restaurant that we had heard about, but we hadn't been to. So one day we took this snow day adventure and we walked down to Da Vinci's. It was like this beautiful evening. And we find ourselves walking up Wood Street and our older child Chandler, who was in the ninth grade, was like, wait, this is where your work is, right, mom? And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Chandler says, oh, I've been meaning to ask you, why does one college name a, a center after another college? And I'm like, what? And Chandler's like, well, you know, you work at the Harvard Center. And I'm like, oh, no. And Raymond and I chuckle. And I'm like, no, no, no. I don't work at the Harvard Center. I work at the Harvard Center. And Elena, who was nine years old in the fourth grade at the time, she's like, what? And, and she makes this all stuff. She's like, what did you say? I'm like, I work at the Harvard Center. She's like, ah. I've been telling all my friends that you work at the hardware center at Bates College. <laughs> and I tell the story because in fact, I do think that's what we're, we're called at the Harvard Center, not to be the Harvard Center, but to think about the tools that are needed for Bates College students and faculty and staff to a lesser degree to get to work in good and life-giving ways in this community. So I like to think of us more as the hardware center <laughs> than, the, than the Harvard Center. Yeah, thank you, Joby. I love that story. Um, I also just, you know, thinking about you talking about settling in in a new community, getting to know Lewiston Auburn. I'm curious now in your possessing as someone who's focused on creating partnerships and connection with the local community, what excites you about Lewiston Auburn? And are there any new initiatives that you're particularly looking forward to? So I could talk, as anybody knows, I could talk forever about what excites me about Lewiston and Auburn. I think this is the coolest community to have a small liberal arts college in. It's just amazing 
the way it asks us to keep things real. So I just think this is a very interesting place. It's not, it's, it's a place filled with challenges and, uh, and filled with people who are just doing the work, getting to work, figuring out, you know, what can we do to make our lives better? And so that, that's what I do love about this community. It's far from perfect. And it's got a lot of people though, who, who want to just reach across all kinds of boundaries and barriers and differences and try to get to work. A couple of things that I'm super excited about right now, one is the Healthy Neighborhoods or Choice Neighborhoods initiatives. Choice Neighborhood is the name of this giant grant and Healthy Neighborhoods is the name of the sort of grassroots organization that grew out of um, residents and people who've lived for a long time in the Tree Streets neighborhood, as well as some newer residents who live in the Tree Streets neighborhood. But uh, there's just so much exciting work and Bates students have been really involved in the work as researchers, as focus group note takers, as um, GIS mappers, all kinds of things. But, but this is just a year, multi-year initiative to ask, what would it take to take a downtown neighborhood that is deeply challenged by poverty, by horrible housing stock, by lead poisoning, by a lack of resources, lack of access to healthy food, all, all kinds of cha social challenges, right? What would it mean to get to work in a way that doesn't lead to gentrification? What would it mean to, to develop a vision that is developed by the people who live in the neighborhood where they get to say what they want to see happen. And what would it mean for institutions like Bates to be in solidarity with that work? And, um, and so this has been you know, this multi-year unfolding of a vision, a transformation plan, uh, a successful planning grant. And now we're on the edge of our seats waiting to see if we're gonna be one of the communities in the U.S. to get a potentially $30 million grant to be able to implement this amazing vision that the people in this neighborhood have crafted over the last years and that Bates has, has been really privileged to support in a variety of ways. So, so that's one thing I'm super excited about. And just really quickly, I'm also telling so many, but one that I've been thinking about a lot um, just, just today is, is there's so much public art energy in this community right now. I'm super excited about that. I'm one of the co-chairs of the public art working group for Lewis and Auburn, and I'm on the board of LA Arts. And, and I, I mean, our heads are just spinning with the projects that are coming to fruition right now, the ones that are being proposed. And it's, it's just, it's in a very exciting time and, and rethinking. And one of the things the pandemic has done is made us rethink the performing arts. It's been devastating for, for performance art, art organizations and artists, but it's also been a time where in, in Lewis and Auburn, we've been able to say, well, what does art walk look like if we can't walk downtown together right now? And so we've developed this virtual art walk and that has allowed Bates students to be way more involved than ever before. Um, I know at LA Arts, we're really looking forward to the in-person art walks coming back, but we've already said, you know what? Art walk needs to go 12 months a year. And when it's inclement weather, it needs to be virtual. And so, and the inclement weather is when Bates is in session, right? You guys aren't here during the summer. And so, you know, this is a way of keeping Bates students, you know, involved in the community in new ways through, through the arts. And so I'm extremely uh, enthused about, about all that. 
No, thank you, Darby. I, someone from Lewiston, I love how much enthusiasm you have for this community. Those people who I know who've lived here their whole lives, who don't have as much as you do. So thank you. I'll, I will say that from my vantage point at the Harvard Center, our local students bring so much to Bates. And they bring so many gifts um, to our community and, and you help connect us and give us credibility as Bates with the local community um, in ways that are just extremely important. So, yeah, thanks so much for, for all of that, Darby. And for the last questions, these are pretty broad. So recently there's been a trend that young people are increasingly looking to work as a source of not just income, but a source of meaning in their lives. And I guess as somebody who's written about work and who's also followed these multiple callings that you've had in your life, how do you think we can best prepare students to find meaning in today's world? Yeah, thanks for that question. I will not do it justice. <laughs> Let's just be clear because it's, it's a huge question. A good question. I would just say one of the things that when I started reading about work, studying work um, myself that I was struck by was just realizing that um, work as a source of identity is such a recent phenomenon. It's so problematic in so many ways. And that doesn't mean that um, work should be meaningless. You know, I think we as humans are meaning make, making creatures. That's part of what defines us as humans, I think. I don't know about other species, but I know that as humans, we desire to make meaning. And so that no matter what our conditions, we're always trying to, to find the meaning that's there, even if we have to sort of impose it <laughs> because, because we, we can't live without it. It's, it's, it's what we need. We're sort of narrative beings and we need stories to live out and to live into. And so work is part of that. It's part of the fabric of, of meaning making, but I think we can place way too much emphasis on it. I think, you know, this pandemic, I, I don't know. I, I look forward to reading what all the brilliant scholars of work are going to do, how, how they're thinking about the reformation of work, perhaps under the impress of this pandemic, as so many people have lost work, as as the work of people who uh, whose work has been so devalued socially and certainly economically is lifted up as the most important work, the only work we cannot live without. <laughs> um, so, so I think we're seeing in this pandemic a kind of world upside down moment uh, around work. I, I, I hope the sort of critique of the old ways that the pandemic has, has surfaced or elevated uh, will not be uh, just a flash in the pan, and then it will really continue to help us think about work, whose work matters, whose work is valued, whose work gets paid for, and whose doesn't, all those kinds of things. I mean, as a, as a parent of two young people, I think, I, I feel that pressure of, okay, I'm educated, and, and I'm smart, and now I need to get a job that lives up to that. That's a lot of weight. And I think it's unnecessary weight. And so I, it's not that I don't want people to follow their dreams or to be ambitious, but I, you know, the dream should be about the kind of person, the kind of community, the quality of relationships, the, the world that will be bequeathed to those you love when you're gone. When I taught my class called The Meaning of Work here at Bates, students were so interested 
um, thinking well beyond, you know, this category of career and profession. They were like, pshaw. And these were not all privileged students who had their way laid out for them, right? These, these were young people who could see the shallowness, the vapid nature of often their parents' lives as totally overdetermined by a narrow uh, definition of what work is and what counts as work and what matters in you know sort of the human story. And, and so students who were like, you know, I don't want that. I want something different. And I just want to cheerlead for all the students who are thinking in those terms, recognizing that um, there are a lot of barriers from the centuries that mean that we can't all sit back. I'm not suggesting like the luxurious life of, oh, let's just decide what I'll do with my life because I've got my material sort of things all taken care of um, by my generations of privilege. Um, but I'm, But still the pursuit of these questions about community and the earth and, um, and love, and beauty, and justice, and equity, and you know that that's that's the good stuff of life. Job schmob. I mean, fit it in there somewhere, but don't make it the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for such a wonderful answer to that. I'm glad we asked. I think that is our last question for the day, but. Thank yeah, you, thank you so much, Harvey. That was All right. wonderful to hear everything. Okay, take care. Thank you to the Multi-Faith Fellows. Multi-Faith Chaplain Brittany Longsdorf. And Darby Ray for sharing her story with us. Thanks for listening and have a good summer.